Okay, I'm going to invite you to return to your seats and grab your Bibles. Well done. Let's pray. Lord, we, we come to the part in the worship service where we, uh, we sit under your word, not under your, your teacher, but under your word. So Lord, would you, would you make your word alive and real to each one of us? I, I think of the words of Peter later in John where Jesus asks, are you guys going to abandon me too? And Peter replies, where would we go? You have the words of life. Would you make today's words the words of life that we need? Lord, would you make us people who can receive the words of life that you are offering? Lord, would you make us people who love you more so that whatever you say, we grab onto, regardless of the cost. Lord, would you make us people who who submit our lives to you in every way, that we would become fully your disciples. Lord, I think of that scripture that says, no disciple is above the master, but every disciple disciple fully trained will be like the master. Lord, would you bring that out for us this morning? Open us to your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Quick analogy here. Um, Back at Christmas time, I had to go to, uh, had, I shouldn't say I had to, I had the privilege of going to a children's concert at um, Silas's school. Silas is in a K to five school. And so this is a, a, it's a small school, Joseph Welsh. And um, so it's in the gymnasium. It, it's a gymnasium about the size of this room. It's not very big. And one of the things that I noticed while I was in there was that the basketball nets are really low in a K to five school. Have you, have you been in these places? I see some of you nodding. The basketball nets are really no, low. It's a really small court, and that, which is fine for K to five, but it's a big jump from that to Lindsay Thurber, right? It's a big jump from that to Eastview. It's a big jump from that to RDP. I assume they have gyms and it's probably NBA size and all of that, right? It's a big jump. And in the church, there have been times where it seems like what we've had is the junior version of the basketball court of discipleship. And what Jesus is going to show us today in a variety of scriptures is that he takes his disciples very quickly from a small court to the basketball hoops being regulation height and, and the court being a lot bigger than what we had maybe expected or anticipated. It's a very interesting thing that he does. It's one of the reasons why he has sent us to John. And I, and I put it that way, sent us to John, because I will, I, what I'm going to do is remind us of some of the things that we have gone through in the book of John before we get to my basketball court analogy about discipleship and so on. 
let me remind you that God sent us to John. Back in the, the summertime, I had a dream in which someone handed me a book. And in the dream, the, the, the word on the book was John. I thought this was just for me. I started reading John and John's letters, Revelation as well, written by John. I thought it was just for me. And then just before Ravi came, uh, that second week of September, Sandra Kaju had a dream and shared it with me in which after Ravi had, had left, someone handed her a book and the name on the book was John. And God confirmed for us that this wasn't just something for Ben, it was something for the church, and it was something for the church once Ravi had left. And so if you are still here and part of unity, there is something for you in the gospel of John at this particular time. We know that. God confirmed it for us. So let me remind you of some of the highlights that we have been through in the Gospel of John over the last number of months. I'm not going to go sermon by sermon. I'm just going to pick up a few of the highlights to make a couple important points. And two of them came right at the beginning. We had two really, really important messages right at the beginning that were new to most of us. And because they were new to most of us, I actually gave you handouts. Uh, I haven't done that. I hadn't done that before. I haven't done it since. But there were two weeks where I gave you handouts. And the first week was when we talked about the word became flesh. And we talked about what the process of that involved was. Because we often read our gospels as though Jesus just pulls his the trigger and goes bam with his own second person of the Trinity power, and someone jumps up and walks on their feet. And what we, we have failed to recognize is that Jesus over and over again in the gospel of John says that the son can do nothing on his own. He can only do what he sees the father doing. The son can do nothing on his own. He will say again, he will speak nothing on his own. He only speaks what he hears the father saying. So what we did was go back to Philippians 2. And in Philippians 2, it says that Jesus, as he became human, emptied himself and laid aside everything that was, by his, um, was to his advantage being God. He did not lay aside his divinity. He laid aside all of the rights that come with divinity. Omniscience, omnipotence. He put those aside and lived the same life that you and I live. So when, Jesus, when you see Jesus go, bam, and someone gets up, it is not because he's second person of the Trinity. So we had to ask why. How does Jesus do that? Jesus only does what he does and says what he says because he has been anointed with the Holy Spirit. This is Bible 101. Acts 10.38 says, God, so speaking of God the Father, anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Obviously, he did not then have them or he would not need to be anointed with them. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed because God was with him. 
Jesus only says what he says and does what he does because he has been anointed by the Holy Spirit. He has the Holy Spirit flowing through him. And that's why he says and does what he says and does. And the payoff of that theology is that Jesus then becomes the example for every single one of us because he had to rely on the exact same thing that you and I need to rely on, the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we took a whole message to to lay that down in a lot more detail. We went scripture by scripture by scripture. I preached it on October the 2nd. It's called A Life of More. You can go find it on the internet, on on our website. The next week, we talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the reason that we did that was because in every single gospel, I don't know if you realize this, but um, there are very few repetitions that show up in every single one of the gospels. They all take their own perspectives for, for a reason. So there are very few things that show up in every single one. Very, very few. The baptism of the Holy Spirit not only shows up in every single gospel, it is then even repeated in the book of Acts. John the Baptist's words. Jesus quotes them. It is, it is crucial to our understanding of who Jesus is and who we are to be that we understand that it is Jesus is the one who baptizes people or fills them, because the Bible uses those two words interchangeably, fills them with the Spirit. We took a whole message to talk about that one. And I I laid it out with a couple of different perspectives and I walked you scripture after scripture after scripture. So if, if week one was a life of more, week two was called finding the more for ourselves. You want to find more? You want to live the life that Jesus lived as our example, who didn't make people walk because he was second person of the Trinity. He made people walk because he had been anointed by the Spirit. You want that life? Get more. Get more of the Spirit. That's what that whole message was about, finding more. October the 9th, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. We then moved on and we looked at Jesus turning water into wine, followed immediately by Jesus emptying the temple. And there's a contrast happening there. Something new is being poured out and something old needs to be emptied. That's what's happening there. We moved on to Nicodemus. Dialogue with Nicodemus. And very early on, we can tell that Nicodemus doesn't know what he's talking about. He starts by saying, we know. We know this. And Jesus has to show him over and over again that he doesn't know. To the point where Jesus will say, the wind blows where it wishes. You don't hear the sound of it, or you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it is coming from or where it is going. And so it is with those who are born of the Spirit. There needs to be a new level of sensitivity to the Spirit that we can go with where the wind is going. And we see that happening in the life of Jesus then. As Jesus moves on from that dialogue with Nicodemus, it says that he had to leave Jerusalem and he had to get up to Galilee. And in order to get up to Galilee, it says that he had to go through Samaria. And I'll remind you that if you look at a map, he didn't have to at all. In fact, that wasn't even the normal way that Jewish people go. He didn't have to, but he had to. 
scripture says. He didn't have to. Normally, they go through Jericho and up along the Jordan and avoid Samaria altogether. He didn't have to, but he had to. He had to because he had to be at a well to meet a woman, to have a conversation with her, to have the spirit flowing through him such that he had insight into her life that he shares with her. And at the right time, she responds to his prophetic word and to his revelation of himself. I am that Messiah you've been looking for. And the result is not only that her life is forever changed, but it changes the entire village because of her word going back and telling people. And the harvest comes to to Jesus' front door. And he stays two days with them, showing us that Jesus is living a life that is filled and flowing with the Holy Spirit. That is what's making these things happen. Now, Jesus, as new wine is being poured out, Jesus needs a new wineskin. Do you remember this analogy? Jesus will use it in another context, uh, in another teaching, and he will say, new wine, you can't put new wine into old wineskins. They will burst. So remember, they don't have bottles, right? They pour wine into a skin from an animal and it and as the new wine expands a new skin wine skin will expand with the new wine and therefore be able to hold it it's a structure but it's something that's flexible and allows change and stewards something that's new new wine requires a new wineskin. And as there's new wine being poured out in Jesus' ministry, he has to find a new wineskin for discipleship. The basketball court gets bigger. He has to find a new form of discipleship that isn't simply teaching. And what I want to do today is show you where Jesus starts to bring a new wineskin of discipleship to his disciples so that they're not simply sitting there listening to his teaching as though that is their only job. It's not by a long shot. Would you go with me to John chapter 4? John chapter 4, we're only looking at one verse. Verse 2. It's a a verse that's essentially parentheses. John is talking about um, Jesus' ministry, and people had heard that Jesus was baptizing, and then John says, oh, by the way, in parentheses, it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptized you see that in verse 2? Jesus wasn't doing the baptizing. His disciples were doing the baptizing. Jesus wasn't doing all the ministry. His disciples were doing the ministry. Picture it. 
There are crowds of people coming to the water where Jesus is and he's teaching them. And they're saying, we want our life changed too. Where do we sign up? And he says, right here at the water. And so disciples are now receiving people and they're not just simply dunking people, right? There's a conversation involved when it comes to baptism, right? Someone comes to you and says, I want to be baptized. And you're like, okay, tell me about following Jesus. Yeah, I like Jesus. And he said, get baptized. Okay, do you know what this means? It, it, it means that you, you, you are forever married to Jesus right here and you're forever dead to yourself. That's right here. Are you ready for that? So they're having those discipleship conversations with people and then they're baptizing them, right? Jesus is involving his disciples in his ministry. You see this? He's teaching them to do what he's doing. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is not signing up for university, right? Where we're going to go to classes, write tests, and show what we know. Discipleship is apprenticeship. It means we work side by side with someone who knows a trade, and we watch what they're doing, and then we do what they're doing alongside them. Discipleship is apprenticeship. So whether you think about it as a mechanic or as a plumber uh, or someone else, you, you sign up and you learn alongside others and you immediately start doing the stuff. That's what it means to be a disciple. Jesus, that's the wineskin that Jesus is going to give them as he's pouring out new wine. It's a, you're going to follow me, but you're going to do it alongside me. His disciples were baptizing. Now, let me show you what else they were doing, okay? Because it's more than baptizing. Go with me to Mark chapter 9, please. I don't like that all of you read on your phones. I like hearing the rustling of pages. <laughs> it makes me feel like, oh, they're with me. Okay. I trust you're scrolling on your phone right now to Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 14. We're going to look at it. Jesus has been up on the mountaintop. There's the transfiguration happening. He took three of his closest disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. They go up onto the mountaintop. They're having their mountaintop encounter with God. Incredible. What are the other nine doing? He left the other nine in charge of the shop. Okay? He left the other nine to continue doing the ministry, do the stuff that Jesus does. And so what is that? Well, look at what he left them to do. Verse 14. When they came back to the disciples... So this is Jesus and the, the three that were up there. When they've rejoined the disciples, they saw some of the scribes arguing with them. And when the whole crowd saw, saw Jesus, they were immediately overcome with awe and they ran forward to greet him. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Meanwhile, someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son. 
he has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And here it is. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't do so. We're going to keep going though. And he answered them, you faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And he brought him the boy. And when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy and he fell down on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you're able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Jesus said, if you're able, all things can be done for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out, cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and said to it, you spirit that keeps this boy from speaking and hearing, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he was able to stand. And when he'd entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, this kind, interesting thought, this kind can come out only through prayer. Pause there. He left his disciples in charge and people were bringing those who needed healing, or in this case, deliverance, to the disciples. And do you notice that the disciples had expected a different result? They'd been doing this stuff with Jesus. He'd been training them to do this kind of thing. And they're surprised when in this case, they don't get the response that they had been trained for, they had hoped for. Are you seeing that Jesus' discipleship involves involves him training people to do the things that he was doing. Do you see that in the text? It's there. They're doing it. And then they, they take him aside and say, Lord, we don't get it. It didn't work. And so he has another training moment with them. Guys, you need to discern that in this particular case, this particular one that you're dealing with doesn't go out the way I'd been training you before. You need something else. In this case, you need prayer. Jesus' discipleship, his basketball court, is a little bigger than ours, right? Because he's been training his people to do the stuff he does. Why don't you look with me at Luke 9 and 10? This is something that shows up in all three Gospels. Verse 1 of Luke 9. Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, not even an extra tunic. And whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. Where, 
um, wherever they do not welcome you, as you are leaving that town, shake the, t- the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. They, they departed and went through the villages, bringing the good news and curing diseases everywhere. Do you see the apprenticeship model that is in place here? He has been taking his disciples with him and training them alongside him for long enough that he now thinks I have confidence in them that I can send them out to do what I've been doing because they've been doing it alongside me. And they're now going to go out and they're going to come back. They're going to report. And then he's going to send them out again. Chapter 10. So look at this. After this, the Lord appointed 70. Apparently, he's been training more than 12. He appointed 70 others. Others. So possibly we're talking about 82 then. 12 plus 70, right? 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in Paris to every town and place where he himself intended to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I'm sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and for that town. Skip down to verse 17, where they come back and they make a report of what they have done. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name, even the demons submit to us. And he said, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What basketball court is Jesus playing on? What basketball court are his disciples playing on? What must his discipleship look like if he can take 12 people and then 70 people and send them out to do this kind of ministry? Where's the gap between his form of discipleship and ours? We're in John 4. All right. In terms of our our progression in our our series, we're in John 4. Right? We finished the woman at the well. 
we finished the Samaritan's coming. We stopped there for Christmas. We're at a point where there haven't been many miraculous things that have happened with the exception of the water being turned into wine and reports that Jesus had done other miraculous things. We haven't really started touching on them yet. And and we're at a, a point in the book where they are about to come one after the other, after the other, after the other. And they're, they're going to move. And in a sense, the gospel of John is moving towards, in one sense, uh, is moving towards John 14, 12, where Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact, will do greater works than these, because I'm going to the Father. Yet we don't have a discipleship model for that. We don't have that kind of wineskin. Jesus had that wineskin. I just showed it to you. Jesus had that kind of wineskin for discipleship that was apprenticeship, doing the same things the master was doing alongside him. We're missing something. Or maybe to put it more positively, we are being invited into something. Because, of course, don't forget that we were given the book of John. This is what we have been given. This is what we are being invited into. Um, John Wimber before he became a Christian, saw uh, a man with a sandwich board walking around on the streets. You know, sandwich board on one message on the front, message on the back, right? And on the front, as John's walking toward him, it says, I'm a fool for Christ. And John thinks, yes, you are. And as he walks past him, he looks back and the back of the sandwich board says, whose fool are you? He remembered that the moment of his conversion as he's weeping and he fell down at the feet of Jesus, gave his life to him. He remembered that moment and he said, I determined to be a fool for Christ for the rest of my life. You are about to get some very foolish messages. As we move through this book. Foolish messages like the one I've given. They're going to sound foolish if we don't think that this is what Jesus is actually calling us to. But he is inviting us into a life of discipleship, a life being filled with his spirit and doing the things that he does that will blow our minds if we actually believe his word. So I'm going to give some foolish messages and we'll see what the Lord does. But I'm not going back to playing on the junior court because that's not the court I see in scripture. That's not the discipleship I see in scripture. That's not the wineskin 
of discipleship that Jesus had for his disciples. Why should I reduce mine? Woe to me if I do. But he is inviting us to something more. And I am inviting us together to say, let's take him at his word and let's watch what he does. He's going to do some amazing things. Let's pray. No, let's listen. Lord, we, we offer you a moment and say, speak, Lord. Let everything Ben has said fall to the side and what you say remain. So we offer you a moment and say, Lord, what would you have us hold on to? Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Lord, would you make us people who are willing to be foolish for you? Would you give us courage to ask you for a wineskin of discipleship that is bigger than we're used to? And would you give us such a passion for your word and a love for Jesus that we won't be satisfied with anything less? And Lord, would you do it not for the sake of excitement or for the sake of novelty or for the sake of look at us, but because you have shown through your word the fruit of your ministry. Lord, I think of the crowd that came to you as a result of one woman's testimony. and the way you want us to interact with people in the same way. Lord, I, I want to be, be someone who, who is apprenticed to you in all of your ways. 
from the ways that are simply learning to love someone who's on the outside to learning to hear your voice for them in the moment to learning what a crowd needs and how to respond Lord, would you make us disciples who will truly lay everything down and live only for you. People who will live our baptism one day at a time. Lord, would you guide us as a church toward a larger discipleship, one that fits with scripture. Lord, thank you so much for the work that you do. Lord, may all of our efforts, all of the the thoughts that we think, all of the ways that we pursue you and seek you and love you, make us people who bless you and show us how to be a blessing to this world just like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Invite Sarah and Sam to come on back up and we will continue with worship. I like that line near the end that talks about if you came and surrender, so will I. If you if you feel like there is a response that you need to make, I'm not quite sure what it is, um, feel free to come on up. We'd love to pray for you, talk it out. Um, Everything we hear from God requires a response, and often those responses require help. So make those steps. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Blessings on you, my friends. Thanks for being here with us. Have a great week. Mm -hmm.